This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted today to be joined by Marissa Strait, who is the CEO of PragerU. Marissa, welcome to the rabbi's husband. Mark, thank you so much for bringing me on. I want to tell you how fun this is. I didn't get to take out my little homash from my days learning Torah in Israel in a very, very long time. It was really fun walking into my little bookcase and pulling out my little red Torah. So you pulled out the Torah and you opened up to Exodus 27, the third commandment. That's right. Sefer Shemot. So mine is 100% all in Hebrew, but I'm assuming we're not doing this in Hebrew. So No, but why don't you read it in Hebrew and then uh, read it in English and then tell us why it's so meaningful to you. Okay. Do you want an Israeli accent or an American accent? Israeli accent. Okay. Lo tisa et shem Adonai Elohecha lashav, ki lo yenake Adonai et sha'arisa et shmo lashav. And what does that mean in English? It's actually interesting because the reason I chose this commandment is because Actually, growing up, I heard that the meaning of it was that you shall not swear falsely by the name of the Lord your God, and God will not clear one's name who swears falsely. And so I thought it was all about, well, you know, you can't use God's name in vain, or you can't use God's name when you're swearing. But the actual Hebrew does not say use God's name, it actually says you should not carry or take God's name. And so if you think about it in those terms, and you don't think about it in terms of use God's name, but actually carry God's name, tisa, carry God's name, then you realize that the meaning might actually be somewhat different. And so I think, you know, what the way Dennis Prager interprets it, which is now the way I look at it, is that it's using God's name to do something that may be good or bad. But God basically is telling us in the third commandment, you cannot use my name to do something bad. That makes so much sense because intuitively, the great God, the creator of the heaven and earth, the the great liberator would not put his third commandment, don't say God damn it. It would be a real letdown if that were it. So that can't be it. He's not so sensitive. Yeah, who cares, right? Who cares, God damn it. Or like, oh my God, oh my God. You know, that, that doesn't matter. Yeah, it would not rise to the level of a commandment. Oh my God, this is the best hamburger I've ever had. You think God really cares about that? No. In commandment number three? No. Or <laughs> not in commandment number three. So, you know, I think if you if you realize the importance of the Ten Commandments, then you realize that it can't possibly be something so, so simple and so trivial. However, if you look at it in the way that Dennis Prager looks at it, in the way that I'm suggesting that we look at it now you actually realize that it's possibly one of the most important commandments. And that is because if people allow themselves to use God's name to do evil, what kind of a world are we going to be living in? And the fact that the the commandment actually ends with lo yinake, lo yinake, I will not clear your name if you do so. Meaning I will not forgive you 
I will not forgive you if you use my name to do evil things. Okay, that's how I look at it. God will not forgive us if we use God's name to do evil things. And so that actually makes sense because none of the other 10 commandments, God says, I will not forgive you. But in this particular commandment, he says, I will forgive you. Now, do you think God is really not going to forgive me if I say, oh my gosh, this is the best hamburger I've ever had? No. But I think it actually does make a lot of sense when you realize that God doesn't want us to do horrible things to other people in his name. And, it, you know, God loves us and loves humanity, and he doesn't want to be a reason for us to hurt one another. And so I think this commandment is incredibly important, incredibly important to me, given I told you I was, I was, um, I was raised in Israel, which is why I'm an American that was raised in Israel. So, you know, it's why I'm able to read this in Hebrew. But the Ten Commandments just to remind us, Ten Commandments were actually given to the people of Israel outside of Israel, not in Israel. And one has to wonder why wouldn't God give us the Ten Commandments in the Holy Land, given that the Ten Commandments are that important. And so, you know, we believe that there's significance to anything that God does. What could be the significance behind giving us the Ten Commandments outside of Israel? One is that the Ten Commandments are not only given to Bnei Israel, the, the people of the children of Israel, they're also given to the rest of the world. And so you don't have to be part of Israel or in Israel to receive the Ten Commandments. But also, if you are part of Bnei Israel and you're not in Israel, these commandments very much apply to you and possibly even more so. And so when you're living outside of Israel, as I am now, I think of the significance of each one of these commandments and how they may apply to me. And when I look around, I think you bring this a little bit to somewhat current events, how many people we see use God's name in vain in the way that I describe it, use God's name to do something terrible to other people, to treat other people horribly. It is something that is worth remarking on. Obviously, it's worth remarking, uh, even if you are living in Israel, you should abide by the Ten Commandments. But these are, these are rules for humanity, not just rules for the people of Israel not the, or the children of Israel. One of the dumbest arguments is that religion makes people do terrible things. And the answer is, yes, some people do terrible things in the, in the misinterpreted name of God, and other people do the greatest things you can imagine, can't imagine in the name of God. So religion is a great force multiplier. And what this is, is basically saying, you cannot let my name be a false multiplier down. It's very powerful. God knew that people are going to use religion to do bad things. God knew that it will happen. And so he put it in the third commandment to remind everybody of any religion, right? Because that's the point of the Ten Commandments. They, they both to go to everybody of any religion to remind you that you should never use religion to do bad things. And that is going to be the one thing that if you do, I will not forgive you. Right. God must have known that people would use religion to do evil. And so he forbid it. And as you point out, the strictest possible way, if you do that, that's the one unforgivable sin to use my name to do evil. Because if you think about it, multiple horrible things happen. One, the evil happens. And also the whole idea of religion can become discredited. Completely. That's exactly it. And then it is exactly what you're hearing people trying to do now. They're trying to say, well, like you said, Religion is causing people to do bad things and therefore let's be atheists. And God has a response to that and says, and he says, no, I'm going to actually tell you in advance that if you use my name to do bad things, I will never forgive you. It will ruin religion and it will not be okay with me. And God almost had to say it because 
God's project on earth is for us to, to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And if people started doing things that were evil or even just wrong in the name of God, then we would all say, well, we want nothing to do with God. And thus, we couldn't become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and the divine project on earth would fail. So God prevents that failure in this correct interpretation of the third commandment, which, as you point out, is so different in every important respect from saying, oh, my God, or God damn it, or some word, which is how I think most people, when they think about it, will commonly associate it with just some kind of turn of the phrase. But it's actually so much more profound than that. It's about taking God's name to do evil and also perhaps even more broadly to expropriating God's authority to places where it doesn't belong. In other words, how many people say, I have this belief, social belief, political belief, whatever, because of God? Like, well, just be careful before you say that God confirms your politics or your social beliefs. You can't expropriate God's name. Exactly. You take the third commandment and you, you read the commandments prior. There's a commandment that talks about idolatry, right? And here I have this in front of me. Okay, so God basically reminds us straight up in the beginning that people are going to want to make all kinds of false gods, right? And so imagine the combination of a world where there is false gods and people taking false gods and doing evil with it. Just within the first few commandments, we're given a true dystopia. And it's a true prediction of what happens in an atheist or in a world that moves away from the Ten Commandments, right? So in a world that, that rejects the Ten Commandments, people start creating false gods and people start doing evil in the name of false gods, right? If you just take the opposite of what God wa- wants for us, you're describing dystopia, you're describing really a terrible place, a place where people are entitled and empowered to do evil things because they start believing in certain causes. And so some of the things that we talk about oftentimes is how people who have rejected God and rejected monotheistic religion go and create other religions because they need meaning in their lives. Humans crave food, they crave community, and they do crave meaning. And so when they create New gods, and one of the videos at PragerU has made re- uh, recently is called Religion of Green. And so our argument is that the left essentially has created a new religion uh, based on environmentalism. And so based on a new religion, they're using God's name to do evil things to, to people. And so I think it's just very interesting how within the first three commandments, God is able to describe what can go wrong with a society that really not only creates other gods, but also uses God to support evil agendas or just agendas that can go wrong by just the simple mistake of thinking that they have recreated a new, a new meaning in life. That's right. And everybody yearns for God or, and everybody yearns for something greater. And even people who are atheists. I mean, there are now 1 million Wiccans in the United States, up from zero a generation ago, pretty much. I mean, it's because when you assert atheism, you just, you just bring in something else. I mean, it might be astrology, it might be Wiccans, it might, whatever. It might be something else. But you're right, it's, it's either going to be God or a false God. And, and it's so interesting, in the book of Numbers, you know, the questions aroused, why were we so upset with the manna? It's the perfect food, We're getting it for free. It's coming every day and we're totally miserable 
and we're just complaining all the time. We are miserable. We're acting miserable. The whole project seems to be a disaster. And then it tells us the people craved a craving. We do know the Hebrew, of course, but it, they craved a craving. So that's what they craved. Yes, do we crave food? Of course, but we also craved a craving. We craved the desire to do something, to build, to create. And, and, and also with the manna, so we get the perfect food. Then what do we do? It says in the Torah, in the text, we cook it, we uh, boil it, we do all these different things that manifest working it. So we work the perfect food because we need to crave a craving and we need to create things. And so it, it'll be the same thing. If we reject God, we're just going to find a substitute. And getting back to the point you made before, so God tells us in early Genesis that man is created in my image. And what we do when we create false gods and expropriate their authority is we're saying we're creating God in our image, which is the reverse. And the distance between what's proper is that we're all created in God's image and we should seek to as much as we can to live up to that divine aspiration and creating God in our image is as far as two things can be. Well, and it's also incredibly self-centered, right? So it's just, that's part of the issue of today when you, you say to somebody, well, you know, if you, if you don't be believe in God, well, where do you get your morality from? How do you make, you know, decisions about what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong? And so their answer is, well, I just know it in my head. You know, it's incredibly, uh, the word humble, uh, <laughs> whatever you can come up with the word is like, who, who do you think you are? You know, who do you think you are that you know exactly what's right and wrong and where, you know, where are you going to get that from? And so before you know it, you think that you're going to decide what's right and wrong. And then you're going to take that mentality and you're going to do things in that, in the name of, of that, you're going to do things in the name of, well, I'm doing what's right. And so that really gives people a justification to do a lot of horrible things because they have basically replaced God with themselves. That's right. And, you know, this, this recalls the book of Micah, Micah 6, 8, where Micah, the great prophet is saying, I don't want your 10,000 rivers of olive oil. All I want you to do is to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. In other words, the relationship with God is you got to be humble. And what's the opposite of humility? It's saying, I know exactly how God wants me to vote. I know exactly what position God wants me to take. And what's even less humble? I'm going to create a substitute for God. But God wants us to walk humbly with him. So, you know, humility in that case is one of the couple virtues. Courage might be another that enables all the other virtue. It's the infrastructure virtue. It's funny how that goes completely in contrast with the uh, very well-known self-esteem movement that you're seeing in schools where you know, kids are being taught 100% self-esteem and virtually nothing about humility. I mentioned I grew up in Israel, and so there were many children who would come to school with a yarmulke on their head, and we would ask, well, why are you wearing a yarmulke? And kids from good homes would know to answer so as following. They would say, so I remember that there is something above me. I'm not above everything, but there is something above me. There is a God above me. And so when kids are taught that there is nothing above them, and again, right or wrong can be determined by humans by whatever people feel at that point in time, then humans can be manipulated. God cannot be manipulated, but humans can be manipulated. And so when children get manipulated and come to believe in other religions, and I think, I believe that in the Ten Commandments, what God meant is when God said, you should not make yourselves other gods. I don't think it's just about simple, oh, we should not 
worship materialism. I think it's beyond that. I think it's you should not replace God with literally anything, with anything, not just materialism, but you should not replace God with yourself. You should not place, replace God with government. You should not replace God with nothing, right? It's actually even deeper than just you should not make a material idol of God. It's, it's way more than that. It's got to be way more than that because the Bible is the guidebook for all times. It's supposed to be our guidebook literally today in October of 2020. And many of us, most of us, almost all of us are not tempted by what we might consider idols, you know, stone things of a dog or something like, you know. And so the Bible would not be for all times and all people if it were about worshiping physical creations that we made in woodshop class. Like we're not tempted to do that. So what are the idols in our day? So we have to figure them out because if it weren't such a persistent problem, it wouldn't be in the Bible and it certainly wouldn't be the second commandment. I think it's incredibly so. It's incredible how relevant it is today. It's incredible how, you know, these two pesukim or and these two um, commandments, the wrote are, are incredibly uh, relevant to today. I'm, I mean, what do you think are some of the things that our people, our society is replacing God with that's, you know, not necessarily material? And look at how these things are actually leading to destruction. I and mean, we've seen over this past summer, you know, our streets burning with riots and, you know, looting and all these terrible self-inflicting problems that we're seeing. And I think a lot of this is a warning that we saw, that we can see here in the Ten Commandments, that you replace God with no meaning. And so there is a vacuum and new meaning comes into people, into communities, into people's lives. And so they start having meaning and other supposed causes and it just starts going all over the place. And before you know it, people are burning their own neighborhoods. And whether someone's a liberal or a conservative, right or left, and almost any faith, I think every great question of life is asked with suggested answers given in the Bible. And it doesn't matter what your politics are, what your identity, it doesn't matter. All the great questions are asked and answered here. And this is God's word. So it's all there. And for what purpose? For the purpose it says in Deuteronomy, it says this is for your benefit. It's a very practical book. It's there for your benefit. Completely. And I think that your comment that really it doesn't matter whether you're on the left or on the right is I think there are people on both sides who are using God's name to treat other people poorly. And I think we're seeing that where they say, well, my cause is more important than yours. And therefore, I'm going to be mean to you and I'm going to treat you terribly. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the Torah also reminds us how we should treat our neighbors. And so, I think more Bible and more Torah specifically is good for everybody on both sides to just remind each other that you should not do evil things to other people in the name of what you believe is a godly cause. Right. Fundamentally, everyone's creating the image of God and we're all struggling towards truth and we should respect each other in the struggle. And what you would know, what's the the Hebrew expression? So you, you greet someone, you say, Shalom Alechem, and the other person says, Alechem Shalom. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, I'm not sure that you would want to rock around streets in Israel and do that. People will think that you're, you've come out of uh, <laughs> Bible study, <laughs> which I guess you have just now. But uh, Right, that's what we're doing now. But so the question is, why would you... So Shalom Aleichem, what's the, what's the exact translation of that? Shalom Aleichem? First, Shalom means three things. So like we can just say Shalom means hi, goodbye, and obviously peace. So when you greet somebody, you say Shalom, which means hi, but you also... Uh, me wish peace upon them, right? And so when you respond with Alechem Shalom, is you respond by saying, you know, I'm hello to you too, but you really are saying peace upon you, 
Right. And you're saying it by reversing the word order. And one of the interpretations, I believe it derives from the Rebbe, is that even though we speak different ways and think in different ways, I bless you and you bless me. Because you would think it would be Shalom Aleichem and then the other person would say Shalom Aleichem. But no, it's Shalom Aleichem, Aleichem Shalom. It's like, even though we're different, even though we speak differently, we're, we're in community and we have the same respect and we're, we're both people under God and it's all good. Let's, let's, go, let's move on together and continue the conversation. Can you imagine what our country would look like if everybody would actually think about these important verses right now and just say we can agree to disagree and still bring peace to one another and not justify ba- bad behavior towards another one another based on whatever we believe our superiority or morale, superior morality uh, stance on things. And can you imagine what a beautiful community we would have if we could just say, you know, I may not agree with you, but I love you. And, and I, I, or not even, I love you. I may not disagree with you, but I respect you. And I can learn from you. Yeah. And I can learn from you. And so, you know, I think these are such important things, but when you believe that your cause is godly and you've replaced God with your cause, and then you believe that you should do anything in the name of that cause, then you have what we're seeing now where people are starting to treat each other, you know, very poorly. Yeah. I mean, and, and that, that's the thing. If you, if you substitute your cause or your beliefs or yourself for God, then almost by definition, you can do anything in the name of your cause or your belief in yourself. And that seems to be God's warning of God saying is it's going to be God loves true diversity. How do we know that? Because the Tower of Babel, right? Because God hates it. Everyone's speaking one language, which is basically a way of saying they're all thinking the same thing. So they're all thinking the same thing. God hates it. He, he changes the languages and disperses the people. And that works if everyone can agree that we're all under God. But if we don't agree that we're all under God, we're going to have lots of problems. But that's why, as you, your interpretation of Third Commandment thinks exactly right, it says that we all, it's basically saying you can't expropriate God's authority. You can't carry up or lift up my name where it doesn't belong. In other words, and make it part of what you want rather than part of what I want and be humble in assessing what that might be. Yep. So we just pray that people, uh, you know, think about these things in a way that will benefit. It's, it's more important that we respect one another and we don't become so, uh, I guess, pompous to believe that we can replace God and then do things in his name. And I think a little more humility on all sides will bring us together and will bring us peace. That's right. And I believe it says in Pirkei Avot, you know, who is the wise person? And it's answered, he who learns from everybody. So if we all believe that we're all under God and we're all very careful about the third commandment and we're all very careful about not expropriating God's name and we're all just very vigilant to say, I just want to be sure, like, am, am I thinking about God? Am I using, is it, am I really under God or am I perhaps making a mistake? And if we're all really vigilant, then we'll be able to say we're all under God, we're all created in God's image. And therefore, everyone I see, I can learn from. And what, you're right, what a, what a different place we'd be in. So Marissa, thank you for such an interesting conversation on the, uh, the much misunderstood third commandment. And the, um, the concluding question always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to uh, another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. He says in the book, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Marissa, in, in your almost 10 years of running PragerU, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Oh my gosh. You know, I think the first is one w- which we touched upon is that people need meaning. You know, I obviously not only learned it from running PragerU, I learned it from the Torah, but I actually got to see it firsthand from running PragerU and 
see what happens that no matter what, if you try to take meaning out of people's lives, they will find new meaning and sometimes the meaning will not be good. And so humankind, people need meaning. And the second one, this is something I've learned as a CEO. So being in management. So I read a book about a year ago about how different people function and receive information in different ways. And so in order to understand one another better, we have to understand that not everybody is the same, but in the way that they handle situations. But oftentimes, if they handle a situation in a different way, it actually is a very positive thing for, I guess, an, uh, a work environment to be exposed to different ways of analyzing and experiencing uh, what the world is throwing at us. And so I use this book that describes humans as four different birds. They're eagles, there are parrots, there are doves, and there are owls in this book. And so it's been fun for me as we've been hiring people at PragerU to try to identify which bird they are. What's the difference between the birds? Okay, so I'll start with the, the eagle, which is very much like my personality. And so I'm very to the point. Many eagles become CEOs. We have great big visions and we run after those visions. And oftentimes we run and break things and people get offended a little bit on the way because we come across somewhat careless or not careful enough and impatient. Uh, with that said, we have vision. And so we're able to you know, build from nothing. And so that's the eagle. And you'll carry people on your wing, which also eagles do and inspire, right? And be able to, you know, give the pep talks that get people moving. And so there are the parrots. The parrots are very social beings. They're good at seeing the macro, but more than anything, they're really good at building relationships and identifying with people. But sometimes they're distracted by shiny objects. So they don't see the, the, the final goal of what they're working towards building. They're really focused on what's in front of them right now. But they're incredible people to get along with. And so those are the parrots in a nutshell. Then there are the owls. The owls is kind of what I call my CFO. So really good at paying attention to the charts and the numbers and the, the owls and, and the eagles do very well together as partners because while the eagles are just flying through everything and breaking things, the owls are making sure that the scaffolding and, and everything is actually properly there. The owl get frustrated. Every eagle needs an owl and every owl needs an eagle to accomplish something great. The truth is all the birds need one another as you hear what they each bring to the table. And so, you know, I think it's really interesting because I think it really just describes how all humans need different perspectives always in their lives. And, you know, it just completely ties into what we just discussed earlier about how you can't be pompous enough to think that the eagles are the best. The eagles have flaws and the eagles have strengths. And, uh, you know, the parrots have flaws and the parrots have strengths. And if you're humble enough to understand that God has created us in all kinds of different ways, and we are there because we all need one another in each other's lives, you can grow a better organization and also have a better life and have more respect for those who don't necessarily approach things the same way as you do. And so the doves are amazing listeners. They're amazing relationship people. They're the person that you want to call on when you don't want to feel judged, but you want to be supportive. You know, listening is obviously very important. The eagle doesn't spend as much time listening. The dove does so. And so you have the dove, the owl, the eagle, and the parrot. Each person has a different perspective on how they look 
at life because they just have a different approach to it. When you respect the fact that individuals are different, but you bring one another together in a way that is geared towards not necessarily harmony, but actually functionality, like being able to function together, you realize, again, God has created diversity, not only diversity of the way, you know, gender and the way we look, but also diversity of thought and diversity of approach to life. And so I think there's something very fascinating about how we're created in that way and building an organization, understanding that humans function in such different ways has been very helpful to me. Fascinating. And I suppose, as we said before, that's one of the lessons, perhaps the lesson of the Tower of Babel. God hates it when people think in the same way, when they approach things in the same way. So he changes the language and disperses us. And then we can all come back together in whatever way we do with our differences that, as you say, is what makes things functional. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Marissa, thank you for such a fascinating discussion on so many topics uh, arising from this, uh, the great third commandment. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been fun. Yeah, it was great. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.